All right, everyone, if you would go ahead and turn to Psalm 6, and as we make our way into the psalm, we're going to find ourselves in very familiar territory, because we've already seen David lament. We're only six chapters in, and uh, now four of these chapters have been lament. When you think of psalms, a lot of the time you're thinking of praise, you're thinking of adoration, you're thinking of the hallelujahs, you're thinking of all these different ways that God is worshipped, and right out the gate here you get two introductory psalms and then four laments. We've seen him in lament, but uh, what comes as a difference tonight is the why behind the lament. In the previous chapters, chapters 3, 4, and 5, David has been grieved over distress that his enemies have been causing. He's been back to the wall, really just struggling with enemies. But here in Psalm 6, we're going to see him do, deal with a new enemy, himself, his own sin. So we are going to go through this psalm twice tonight. We're going to go through once just so that we grasp the message of the text. Then we're going to go through it once to grasp the implication of the text to our lives. Exposition and application, if you will. So let's look at this text now. Psalm 6. To the choir master with stringed instruments, according to the Sheminath, a psalm of David. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul is also greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death, there's no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. For the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Lord, we as your people experience trouble often. We experience pain. Some in our midst tonight might be living that reality right now. But we know that you are a God of comfort and of compassion. And as we look into your words tonight, these words of your songbook, may we come face to face with something that challenges us. Use your word to fuel our devotion for you. Fuel our songs for you. And may we embrace what Psalm 6 has to tell us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So verse 1 through 7, the first major chunk of this psalm is an appeal. David begins these verses 
uh, verses this whole, this psalm with an appeal to a just God to be merciful in his judgment and gentle in his wrath. 70% of the psalm is this appeal. It's an expression of sorrow. It's a lament, a contrite acknowledgement of his sinful shortcomings. And David doesn't even spend time getting into the details of his sin. And part of this shows that the man after God's own heart is so in tune with how his God relates to him that he recognizes the righteous workings of God's disciplinary hand on his life. We don't know the historical situation here. We, unlike Psalm 51, where we, that's a psalm of lament and a psalm of confession that we know is specifically targeted to the time where David committed adultery with Bathsheba, murdered her husband. He's repenting and crying out because of this. We're given no details as to what this sin is in reference to, what he is crying out for. But David recognizes the Lord's holy right to discipline. And he pleads with him. He pleads for him to pass sentence, but did not do so in anger. This sentiment is also expressed in the book of Jeremiah. In chapter 10, verse 24 of his book, Correct me, O Lord, but in justice, not in your anger, lest you bring me to nothing. And that really paints this in a, in a more clear light, too, because Jeremiah paints and fleshes out the fear of God. If God were to let loose with all of his righteous anger, fury, wrath onto sin, who could stand so David is crying out to God to not discipline him in his anger and in his wrath. <clears throat> David's discipline is playing out in both his body and his soul. He is troubled physically. We see that he is, my bones, my bones are troubled, is what he says. But his pain doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop at just a sickness. It doesn't just stop there where he is in pain and having just to lie down. No, he is troubled in his very spirit. The Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, had this to say about this, uh, this coupling of verses, that it matters not if the bones shake, if the soul is firm, but when the soul itself is also vexed, this is agony indeed. We can all attest to different times in our lives, or maybe we know someone in our life who... Maybe their bones are troubled. Maybe their body is troubled. There's sickness just running rampant. But they have a, a firm, solid soul that is unshakable. David's not experiencing that here. He's experiencing the entire envelope of the Lord's discipline. There's no rest. There's no peace outside of the mercy of God at this point. So we need to take notice of how David addresses his troubles. He's got both going on, body and soul. But David seeks after grace before he seeks after healing. Even in the midst of intense physical suffering that is confining him to his bed and causing him to weep 
nightly and daily, David's first appeal is for mercy and for grace. After and only after that, only after his spiritual state is addressed, does he ask for healing. These burdens are so heavy on him that he cuts his cry short at the end of that first section, leaving it at two words. How long? His agony is so intense that all he can do is say, Lord, how long? David's usually not one to shorten words. He's a, he's a poet, and he loves to make sure that ideas are fleshed out, that clarity is given, but he stops right there. How long? After this appeal for grace, David offers an appeal for remembrance. He's been calling on God, but now he takes it a a step further. He grounds his plea Not in anything he has to offer, but in God's very character. Eternal Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. Essentially, David's saying, oh God, God, remember your promises. Oh, remember your promises to your people. Remember your promise to me. And it's a reminder is also to himself that he serves a God whose love is deeply committed. Then, if an appeal to the Almighty God's faithfulness isn't enough, David offers one last argument for his case. He says, God, if I go, there's one less witness for you here on earth. We see this idea echoed again in Ecclesiastes verse, uh, chapter 9, verses 5 through 6, which was written by Solomon, David's son, in the latter portion of his life. And he says in Ecclesiastes 9, 5 through 6, For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. But it's important to see here that neither David nor Solomon are, have the, any intention of minimizing the fact that death is the better deal. For any child of God, for anyone who is, belongs to the people of God, death means freedom from sin, freedom from pain, freedom from sickness, But instead, they are maximizing the fact that they would rather not meet death quite yet because they desire to continue pointing others to their God. They want to keep pointing to his grace, to his mercy, to have yet another instance where they can say, God has been faithful to me. Remember me for the sake of your steadfast love. This almost ends his 
his plea, his appeal. The very last two verses we've already touched on, that he is weary with his moaning, and every night he floods his bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. But David's appeal transitions directly and immediately into triumph in verses 8 through 10. David's celebration at the end of this psalm is like us going before a judge, making a plea, and breaking into a celebratory dance before he's even passed sentence, before that gavel has even hit his podium. We are celebrating the fact that we've been pardoned. The difference here between us in that situation and David and his is that David's judge is his father. David's judge is his almighty God. David knows the faithfulness of his God. He saw it as a kid taking care of dirty, smelly, nasty sheep out in the wilderness. He saw it as he went toe-to-toe with a giant. He saw it as he was pursued by Saul out of jealousy because Saul knew that he was going to be king after him. All throughout David's life is a testament, a testimony to God's faithfulness. So that's why he appeals to his steadfast love. He has an assurance here that trumps everything. The assurance that God heard his pleas trumps pain, trumps depression, trumps anguish. And the fact is, God has not just heard David's appeal. Though he says that, he says, God has heard my plea. The very next sentence is, the Lord accepts my prayers. He has accepted David's prayers. Sin riddled as he is, David is accepted in his faith because he realizes his need for God. David's enemies from the past previous chapters here um, make a quick return here at the end as the shame and loathing and pain that David has been feeling is shifted over. These enemies have apparently been watching him, and even though this is a self-inflicted uh, torment, they are heckling him, and they are pointing to him, just waiting for him to fall. Triumph over enemies and sin is the byproduct of appealing to a loving God, to repenting from our sin. Christ quotes this psalm in several of his teachings. In verse 8, uh, he, he quotes verse 8 in Matthew 7 and Luke 13. And his message in both of those passages is that everyone who frivolously calls him Lord, who does miracles in his name, who serves others, but never submits to the actual lordship and atoning work of Christ for salvation, do not belong to him. He tells them regardless of their excuse or reason, 
Verse 8, depart from me, you workers of evil. Evil and lawlessness are enemies of God, not just of his people. And I think sometimes we forget that. We, we get caught up in how we are affected by the evil of this world, and we see them as a bitter enemy, and rightly so. As the people of God, we are at war with the desires of this world, with the goals of this world. But we have to remember that they're not just our enemies. They are God's enemies as well, and he ultimately has the last word. Jesus also references verse 3. In John 12, after he has entered Jerusalem to Hosanna's and is set and fixed on his path to the cross, Jesus quotes verse 3 of the psalm. He says, now my soul is troubled. But there's a difference here. Whereas David says, my, uh, heal me for my bones are troubled, and then my soul is greatly troubled, but you how long? Jesus says, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. That's John 12, 27 through 29. Jesus, the greater David, Jesus, the one whom David is pointing to throughout his whole life, knows that the road of suffering is before him. But he knows that this discipline is the working for his Father's glory. So now let's turn from the message of the text to his applications. In all of this, David exemplifies really four attitudes that we must have as we walk through God's discipline. The first is that we must submit to God's just discipline. To begin with, we have two contrasting views of discipline. The world associates discipline with a negative connotation. Sometimes we might as well. They think of pain. They think of stress. They may think of a disapproving, potentially abusive and angry parent lording over them with a, whip, uh, with a belt in one ham, hand and an angry grimace on their face. And whether they like to admit it or not, this world fears judgment. And rightly so. Because this world is fixed firmly in the crosshairs of God's righteous anger. With no sin atoned for, dressed in the filth of their absolute best works. All the while, God is using his corrective discipline, his holy law as a mirror in their faces of their inadequacy so that they might repent and turn to him. But while this is a view of discipline from a world's perspective, there could be no greater contrasting picture for God's children because Christ took the teeth out of this discipline on the cross. Throughout Scripture, God's people are reproved and disciplined out of love. We see in Revelations 3.19 when uh, that, that letter is specifically addressing the church in Laodicea. It reads, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. 
so be jealous, so, so, so be zealous and repent. So even with love, repentance is required. If wherever there is sin, repentance is required. And Scripture gives us a word for any child who revolts and disdains the discipline of a loving father. It calls him a fool. Proverbs 15.5 says, A fool despises his father's instruction, but whoever heeds reproof is prudent. So there's practical wisdom in this for any believer. Don't be a fool. Pretty, pretty straightforward. And then also prudently heed the discipline of the Lord. We also have to realize as we've contrasted these views of discipline that God has every right, is within his holy right to discipline us regardless of where we stand in Christ. If we are outside of Christ, even our morality is a mockery of his holiness and the atonement for the sin will come to cost us our souls. But if we are in Christ, he has atoned for the wrath that we deserve once and for all. But we must repent of sin. We must also see that discipline is carried out by God in one or two ways, one or two circumstances. At times, discipline comes exactly like we see it here, through the consequences of sinful actions. And that seems to be the case with David. Even Christians have to deal with the aftermath of their own sin. Our eternal state is secure, but we can still allow sin to destroy our life through consequences. But at other times, discipline is dealt to drive our sanctification. That is to say that all discipline in our lives is not the immediate effect of sin in or around us. And we see that played out as Jesus is teaching in John chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. It says that as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents, that he was born blind. But Jesus answered, It was not this man that sinned, nor his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We see it in Job. His friends are provoking him again and again, saying, There must have been sin in your life to incur such an outpouring of discipline. But Job remained rightly resolute that he had not sinned. The disciplinary hand of God might be upon us today, it might be on us tomorrow, it might be on us six months or a year from now, but it may be out of grace rather than wrath. Your affliction may be the vehicle he uses to convey his saving and faithful works to a spectating world. It may be Verse 5 of the psalm, For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? That is why, regardless of the circumstances leading to us, we must submit willingly to the discipline of the Lord. That is why David says in, chapter, in verse 3, after he's laid out everything, he just leaves it at how long? 
And John Calvin says of this plea, when we have freely complained of his long delay, when we say how long, that our prayer or sorrow on this account may not pass beyond bounds, we must submit our case entirely to his will and not wish him to make greater haste than shall seem good for him. Brothers and sisters, do you make a habit of submitting to God's discipline? This doesn't mean that you, just, you, that you don't plead with him to remove it. This doesn't mean that you don't go through the steps of repentance. This doesn't mean that you actively pursue lifting the hand of discipline from your life. But when his hand remains on you day after day, do you find yourself content? Do you find yourself content in his discipline and affliction? And this leads us into our next point. Number two, we must keep our priorities in line. What is your priority when you cry out to God? Is it his boundless mercy and his grace on your life? Is it, is it out of a soul of repentance? Is it forgiveness? Or is it healing and deliverance from whatever has you uncomfortable? And David, as we've seen already, sets the example yet again by seeking grace before healing. Remember God's steadfast covenant love. Be a witness of his faithfulness in your affliction. Even if it seems that that discipline may take us to the grave, we have the opportunity to put God's faithfulness on display. So brothers and sisters, how do you measure affliction? How do you measure the discipline of God in your life? Do you measure it against your comfort? Do you measure it against a barometer of perceived fairness? Jeremiah Burroughs, a a Puritan who wrote extensively, reminds us that our perception of our afflictions should be measured instead of against our comforts, fairness, it should be measured against our perception of our sins. Contentment and affliction doesn't come from getting rid of the burden of, of affliction and sin, well, of, of affliction and discipline. It comes by adding the additional burden of understanding rightly our sin. I'm going to say that again because I was all around it for a second there. Contentment in our affliction does not come from getting rid of the burden of affliction and discipline. It comes through adding an additional burden on our hearts and rightly understanding our sin. The heavier we perceive the weight of our sin, the lighter our burden of affliction will be in our heart. So often our affliction seems to be the greater weight, when it should be our view of sin that dwarfs that view of affliction. We have to start with a plea for grace before we can even think about physical healing. Jesus practiced what he preached in this. And in Matthew uh, chapter 9, this is where the four friends brought their their paralyzed friend to Jesus while he was in uh, Peter's mother's house and lowered him down 
And Jesus sees this man, and the first thing out of his mouth wasn't to speak to his obvious physical need. The first words out of his mouth were, Take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. There's tangible physical need, and Christ starts with the deepest need, forgiveness. And when we start to understand that forgiveness is more significant than our physical well-being, then we join David in our third point. We join David in his anguish. So we must see our sin is worthy of weeping over. As David weeps to the point of weariness, so too we should be undone by our sin. We weep over a lot of things these days. Some of them very much so warranted. But there are very many meaningless things that we shed tears over. Books, movies, reality TV, loss of a possession, frustrations at work or frustrations in our home. But let me ask you something, brothers and sisters. When was the last time that you shed a tear over your sin before God? How much do we mourn our sin in comparison to our mourning over the fictional tragedies that we're exposed to? Does our quest for forgiveness remain a cold business transaction? We pray that it's not so, but how often is it? And then finally, we reach the point in this psalm where despair is not the reigning factor in our appeal. The pain and spiritual anguish are put aside. We're in these last three verses, and David shows us that regardless of discipline, sin, and affliction, God's children always have a way out. So number four, we must not remain in the valley of despair. This is not a place to pitch your tent. This is not a place to put down roots because if you do, we will lead a bitter life indeed. Instead, we can look at our enemies, we can look at our sin and shame with confidence and tell them, get out of here, depart from me. The Lord has heard the sound of our weeping. We also cannot confuse our anguish with anxiousness. Our crying out to God is not some nail-biting, uncertain business. There's no doubt that he has heard our pleas. There's no doubt, and we should live in full assurance that he accepts our prayers. And once we have made our appeal, once we have repented, once we have wept over our sin and our consequences, it's time to move on. We don't have time to wallow in the squalor of shame. We are to be about our chief business. We are to be about our chief end of glorifying God and enjoying him forever. And we can't do that if we are so focused on sins that we've repented of, discipline that is heavy on our lives, 
enemies from without and from within, we have to tell it to depart and move on. Leave the shame in his hands. He will ultimately apply it to where it belongs. We, in our responsibility, have to learn our lessons from his corrective discipline. Joyfully putting his work on display in our lives. So as we're wrapping up, we must submit to God's just discipline as we also keep our priorities in line. Seeing our sin as worthy of weeping while not remaining in the valley of despair. Scripture always calls us to respond. It is God's self-revelation to us. It is his communication to us. And just like any communication, any relational communication, he's not wanting to just say something and us just sit there. We are, we are called to respond. That's what we do in our worship. That's why our services are structured the way they are. It's a call and response, a conversation, a back and forth. God reveals himself. We respond in adoration. He reveals himself as how, how holy he is, and we confess. He forgives us. We hear his word proclaimed. We devote ourselves to his work. We have to respond. It's the entire reason we exist. So tonight... After going through this psalm twice, it's time to evaluate. Where do you stand in relation to God's anger towards sin? Have you rejected Christ? Have you rejected his offered salvation? Or are you found in Christ and sheltered from his ultimate wrath? How do you respond to discipline? Do you focus solely on your troubles and your circumstances? Or do you act as a beacon for God's everlasting faithfulness in a dark and troubled world? Do you appeal to God with expectancy? Knowing that he is going to hear your cry, knowing that he will accept your prayer? Do you pray, rest, and find triumph in knowing that ultimately God's will will be accomplished? Let's let Hebrews 12, 5 through 11 be an encouragement to us tonight. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subjected to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. 
but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. God treats us as sons. God treats us as daughters. And as the last bit of that passage talks about, there may be some pain before there's pleasantry, but may we find submission and triumph in the Lord's discipline. As our Heavenly Father seeks to produce in us the fruit of righteousness that he desires to find. Father, we see David crying out. We see how he is familiar with crying out to you, to talking to you. Father, we see and we experience trouble all the time. There, as we prayed earlier, there's, I'm sure there are some in our midst, maybe on our live stream, maybe some that maybe listen to this later, that are experiencing great trouble and turmoil. Father, I pray that we keep two things in view. That we keep the weight of our sin as a measurement against that of our affliction because Lord, we know our sin is greater. But also, Father, that we would keep in mind and in sight the righteous fruit that you would produce in us. Going back to Psalm 1, you said that the blessed man is planted beside the stream of water. It does not wither or fade and produces fruit in its season. Father, I pray that we would be patient as we wait for your season. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your faithfulness. And Father, tonight, we thank you for your discipline. May we grow in it. In Jesus' name, amen.